So you're sitting there listening to this podcast, listening to the stories of other doctors who found freedom through direct primary care, and you're sitting there wondering whether or not it's something that could be for you, wondering how you could start your own DPC practice. Are you ready to take control of your practice? Are you ready to provide the personalized care your patients deserve? The DPC Summit is your gateway to success in direct primary care. Join us for an immersive experience designed to empower you with tools, knowledge, and community support needed to launch and thrive your own direct primary care practice. Discover the freedom to practice medicine on your own terms without the constraints of insurance companies dictating patient care. Visit dpcsummit.org to secure your spot today. We'll see you there. There is some language that may be inappropriate for young listeners, so please consider this as you listen today. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode was recorded in the fall of 2020, just before I welcomed my second son and on the day after I had officially started my maternity leave. I hadn't yet handed in my 60-day notice, so I hadn't released it until now. In the interview, I will say here that my eldest son, Asher, makes some occasional appearances, and I have just loved listening to the interview because the advice that Dr. Gunther drops about being a parent, a doctor, an entrepreneur, and a human being are so timeless. So without further ado, here is Dr. Julie Gunther, everybody. Direct primary care is an innovative alternative path to insurance-driven health care. Typically, patients pay their doctor a low monthly membership and, in return, build a lasting relationship with their doctor and have their doctor available at their fingertips. Direct primary care was my exodus from the traditional healthcare system and has in seven years' time, has provided me with autonomy, education, camaraderie, enthusiasm, opportunity, and hope. And I became a physician because I had a very clear idea of what it meant to me to be a physician. And as I spent five or more years in the system, I started to see that I was dedicating my life to something I no longer believed in. So the transition and discovery of direct primary care has allowed me to authentically be the physician I want to be. It has restored the joy that I think is inherent to this profession. And honestly, it sounds silly to say this, but at the end of my days, I think it has allowed me to be really proud of the life I've created. Um, Not to mention the daily challenges of entrepreneurship. And um, I said when I went to med school that I wanted to be challenged every day. And I don't know if I really meant that, but certainly DPC and entrepreneurship And uh, the practice of medicine has really delivered on that. This is Dr. Julie Gunther. I am the owner of SparkMD in Boise, Idaho. And this is my DPC story. Dr. Julie Gunther earned her medical degree from the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle and completed her residency at Ball Memorial Hospital Family Medicine Residency. She is a dual board-certified family physician and American Academy of Family Physicians fellow who founded SparkMD, a direct primary care practice in downtown Boise, Idaho in 2014. In her seven years in DPC, she has been featured in Forbes, National Public Radio, Bloomberg, Reason TV, Medical Economics, and several other news outlets. She is a DPC leader, current president of the DPC Alliance, and has spoken at the DPC Summit, Doctors for Patient Care Foundation, FMX, and many local and regional meetings since 2016. She is a founding member of the DPC Alliance, a former board member of the Direct Primary Care Coalition, and one of the minds behind the DPC Alliance Mastermind Series. 
Dr. Gunther loves challenges, entrepreneurship, working with people and values that all DPC has done for her professional development, love of medicine, community, and healthcare as a whole. Good morning, Julie. Oh my gosh, oh, well, how are you? You're due soon, yes? Yeah, we we are 37 and 1 today. It's unreal because, I mean, like yourself, you have two. And yeah, I have no idea what I'll remember from the first one. And my son is almost three. He's actually going to be three on Monday. So we'll see. And then now it's different because with COVID masking in the hospital during labor, I'm like, that's so that'll be different. Um, like you just don't need more drama during labor. But in, in my very yeah. strong opinion, I fully respect people who choose not to have children. I fully respect people who only want one kid. But I also we only have two. I would have liked to have had four, but that probably wouldn't yeah. have been a great life situation yeah. as things have panned out. But I, I firmly believe having a second kiddo made us way better parents for the first kiddo. That's, it just, that's awesome. Yeah, it just and to a certain extent. And then my brother, so I have a 15 year old and a 12 year old now, and my brother and his wife just had babies. They're actually one this weekend. They had twins. It's funny to see, cause while it's been 12 years since we had a newborn, um, I mean, we do newborn care at the practice too, but I'm just so much more comfortable with them than I was with my own babies. And yeah. my brother is, I think sometimes a little bit floored. He's like, how do you know all this? How do you know to do all this? But you just learn it. It's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. It's actually, it's weird to say, but our experience, it's actually easier with two because like it's easier, but harder, if that makes sense. But like yeah. the second, the first one just has to learn to get their stuff together. It's a perfect age in the sense that there's probably things your three-year-old should be pushed to start doing for himself that you're not doing because you're first time parents with him. And yeah. and so there's some natural rhythm to it. I think I love to hear that, especially from a mom of, of two who are three years apart too. It's, it's so different when you're taking care of kids in the clinic. And then when it's your own, you're like, what, what do I do sometimes? Rob Rossbro, he was saying the other day, he's it's okay. The second one will be feral. And that I can picture that. But yeah, at the same time, I think that my son is very much a helper. He's definitely in the, I do it stage. So I yeah. think it'll be nice to have him help out so that he feels included. And I think that's one of the things I'm the most apprehensive about is how, how he, how, so, so he doesn't feel that he's any less important. Yeah. But, but yeah, he, but he will be. And that's, it sounds crazy, but that's the fun thing of parenting is, is it's a gift in my opinion for a person to be raised, to understand sure that at times their needs have to be prioritized with other people's yeah. needs yeah. and, and having a second child forces you to help him with that lesson. If you weren't going to yeah. do it anyway. And then in hindsight, that's a really valuable lesson for him. And the other thing we talk about all the time in our house is just, I, I believe in the, an infinite capacity for love or giving. So it's like when you and your, yeah. your partner married, there was no discussion that, well, maybe some people do. Gosh, if we have a child, is that going to dilute our ability to care for each other? Now, I don't know what it would be like to have 21 kids. I think there is a <laughs> bandwidth of of ability to attend to anything. But I think, I think love can be administered in very small increments. And it can be very clear that it's true love in the sense of I'm a big proponent as a working parent, that I'm a better, more loving, more capable parent when I'm able to be with my kids a small amount of time then I, I'm with them a lot. Like, and, and that's yeah. illustrated when we have with COVID, there's a point where you're like, I yeah. actually just want you to go away. So my husband and I just celebrated our 20th anniversary. Yeah. We spent Congratulations like, to you too. Yeah, so we spent cool. like five days together in Jackson hole and in the car. Yeah. And 
I actually, but I mean, I love this man and I miss spending a lot of high quality time with him, but there's also a point yeah. where I'm like, I'm not my best me if I'm with anyone all the time. Like, I just can't, I need like some space, but by the last, I want everyone to go away and want to do a craft. It's awesome. well, I am so grateful that you are letting me talk to you and participate in this. And I meant what I said on online, which is this is something that is necessary, that is valuable. I, I, I wish some sensationalistic TV station would catch on and do a long documentary about all of us because all of these individual stories are so important. Um, there's a lot of discussion in our movement about, about we need to turn the focus on the patient and the discussion should be on the patient. And actually, I've always disagreed. And it's one of those things that, that is, is hard to disagree with because clearly like the calling of medical care yeah. is about taking care of others. But it's actually, it's a completely perfect analogy to this. If there is no mechanism in place for you to take care of yourself, mm -hmm. and in fact, your husband and your two children do nothing but just demand of you, and then on top of it, you have to answer to a landlord and the garbage yeah. man and the window cleaner. If every domain in our personal life was beyond our control, yet we were expected to answer to it, but then we're expecting your children to thrive, it's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. So it's not to say there's not a give and take. It's not to say someone has disproportionately bad or difficult days. But I, I've just, we keep, we, while we talk about burnout and exhaustion, it's, it's been very hard for us as a culture to really talk about the privileged physician. And we look at physicians as being of great privilege, but talking about how absolutely essential it is for the physician to thrive. And from that so, comes a thriving patient population. It's a very weird way that I got introduced to that concept, but it's so absolutely true. We have a, a Filipino veteran focused clinic in Sacramento. I went to UC Davis and we were doing a volunteer clinic for them through UC Davis. And at this golf tournament, there was a, a person who was one of the players took a golf cart and it flipped over the Mama? hill. Yes, baby. You okay? Um What's your, what's your yeah. little man's name? Oh, can you tell Dr. Julie what your name is? My name is Asher. Hi, Asher. My name is Julie. Well, how are Asher you, Asher? Asher, how are you doing? Good. You good? Are you helping mommy? Yeah. Does mommy have a baby in her tummy? Yeah, that's baby brother. Your baby brother? Are you so excited? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Lauren Hetty, and I practice at Direct Doctors in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And I just wanted to do a shout out for Mother's Day to all those mom docs who are out there and are thinking that maybe they might be wanting to think about something new, like practicing direct primary care. I would say as a mom of three, 10 years into this, it's the best decision I've ever made. And you can definitely do it, too. But yeah, this golf cart fell off of a of the side of a hill and I was freaking out because I was like, oh my gosh, this person is hurt. What do I do? And this is when I was an undergrad. So I hadn't had any medical training. And this doctor, he talked to me afterwards. He's like, you have to take care of yourself before you are able to take care of others. Because if you are freaking out, you, you cannot focus on what needs to get done. And so it's, it's a very different way. Is Spot coming? Hold on to mama's hand. But yeah, the, the idea that but with, with this podcast, I love the idea that it can be timeless in that someone two years from now who's new to DPC or someone who's been in it for seven years is listening to somebody else's voice and reminding themselves about how 
like their own journey was or how DPC can inspire people and how it is important to take care of oneself because um, you eat when you can, you pee when you can mentality is so it's not okay. And then your patients can totally feel that, right? You have patients who they know you well, and then they'll comment, are you okay today? They, they, they check in with you because they can tell that you're stressed if you're running behind and stuff. So it, I, I cannot agree with you more on that for sure. Julie, I, I actually had read your, for, before your book, you had put out that um, document, that the, Gmail. Yeah. 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 So that's basically the, what the book the is. Thing. I added a tiny bit. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But with the Holstein Manifesto and with your comments, the things that I that you added in your book, though, that really just floored me. The first day I was reading it, you talk about how, let me turn to the page. One of the things that you mentioned was your years in service. And then all of a sudden, they're basically saying as your employer, like, you don't matter if you stay, you, you stay. If you don't, we don't really care. And literally three days before I created this podcast, my husband and I had been given a, you either sign an RVU contract or you get terminated letter. That a similar situation of devaluing your yeah. services as a doctor. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is uncanny, you know? And then your note about, you know, your patients and you offered them a same day visit. And then you didn't know that your staff told them the closest visit she has is two weeks from now. And you're like, if you had control over that, you would never have let that happen. And you don't even know that happens sometimes. I just, I I really related to those. But so when similar situations happened to me, just as of September, I literally sat there and I was like, this is extra time on my plate because I spend four to six hours probably a week doing the podcasting and editing. But yeah, I, I never thought that I would ever do a podcast or ever find healing in a podcast, but it's totally because I'm hearing other people's stories. Yeah. Next one of my time. biggest epiphanies, I think I tried to say this in the document or the book and, and what I've loved about DPC at the beginning, it felt like I was really putting myself out there and exposing these things mm-hmm. that I felt vulnerable about. And then you sit in a yeah. room and everyone's nodding and all of a sudden you've found yeah. people <laughs> and then people come up and they're crying because what yeah. you, they yeah. felt alone too. And what you said and those specific examples, all of a sudden, just like you are like, kapow. And what's tragic is that yeah. this isn't a yeah. unique story, but what's mm-hmm. so important mm-hmm. is, and this is changing, which is good, but physicians really die in isolation and we're really yeah. ripe in the employed model to be one-offed, meaning like mm-hmm. you're the problem, you're the trouble child, you're the one who can't get your note done on time. And all of a sudden, what I think of a lot is... I haven't had a lot of bad relationships in my life, but I've had, I had one or two romantic relationships that I didn't realize how not good they were until I was out of them because I I made it work in them. And I think many of us have that personal Mm -hmm. analogy. And so it's so hard to know how bad something is when you're in it, especially with all these other social things we're taught about. Don't whine, don't cry, don't pee. What are you complaining about? You're making 150 K a year. What's your problem? So my big epiphany was realizing, like, I was so mad at my employer. And and my big epiphany that I think is actually even more tragic was when I realized, oh, my God, it's not my employer. This is the entirety of what's happening in our healthcare system. So for my yeah. little, like, examples of unsustainability touch points, like someone who's very close to me with strep throat who just wanted to pop in and get his throat swabbed and he's directed to an urgent care and I'm RVU paid and I'm like, the whole thing's insanity and it just shows how the system's broken. When I share those stories and then 20, 15, 100, whatever, or even one doctor is, oh my God, that just happened today. We get yeah. to see that it's a failure of the structure of our healthcare system and the physician's role in it. 
I wish it was just me. I wish I was just some profound problem child and that everyone else's situation was great because then it would mean our healthcare system as a whole was more highly functional than it is. But without ego, without paternalism, we have to get to a place, in my opinion, where we respect that the physician is like a quarterback or the point guard or whatever you want to call it. And that, yeah, while we're all on the same team, there are people who carry heavier weight and have bigger roles and are more accountable. And what comes with that is, is the ability to have more authority. And that just is what is necessary to provide the highest quality and the safest patient care. And the systems I worked in were not in a phase where they accepted that. My voice didn't matter. My opinion didn't matter. They said it did, but over time it didn't. And it was to the detriment of my health and my patient's health. And it took me a super long time to catch on to that because I thought something was wrong with me. And as sad as that is, it's not surprising though, because of the way that even our training is like most of us have had experiences where the attendings, no matter what specialty they were, have been very patriarchal. And I think that the idea of opening your own clinic after residency is so foreign to people. And like in my res- so I graduated 2015 and in my residency, there were 12 per year and 80, 90% of them went to Kaiser because yeah. that's what you do. You go to residency and then you go to Kaiser. And it's, I, and I, I was also in that boat. Like I wanted rural family, full scope medicine, but what I envisioned was an employed model. And we know that CMS is going to make whatever changes they're going to make. But like, even in our local community, the specialists are the ones ironically just speaking up when you can't code until you fill up this screen, or you can't pass go until you do this now. And it's just, it's so painful. But one of the questions that I wanted to ask, especially of you, because with your involvement in the DPC Alliance and the movement in general, like, how do we affect the pipeline? How do we get people at an early age to think about the possibility of being the quarterback or the possibility of being empowered to run your own clinic? That's a huge question that I keep thinking over and over in my head. It just, we, like, we can't, we can't get more people in the movement fast enough. And one of the things that I was thinking about too, is that a lot of DPCs are growing. And at some point, if like yourself, if you decide to open a second or third or fourth branch of Spark MD, who are you going to hire yeah. to do that? Like, where's the pipeline coming in to feed new DPC doctors? I think this is a really great question. I think it's a, can we see her? You can't well, see uh, Yes, I, I will show you. I, I will show you her you. picture here. This is- I have very crazy black and white hey, hair. <laughs> Did you just say FaceTime? You did. He's awesome. That's Dr. Julie. That's me. Do I have my crazy black and white hair or do I have long brown hair in that picture? This one is the, this one is the former with the black glasses and your black shirt and stethoscope. Okay. So that's where I have my, I think my black and white hair. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have very long brown hair, but that's changed. I think the pipeline issue, it, it goes hand in hand with the scalability issue. And I don't know, my, my like heart, my gut sinks, sinks when this issue comes up. And I think it's because I know it's one of the hardest questions about where we're headed. And, And I've long felt like I've long questioned. So I'm the president of the Direct Primary Care Alliance for the listeners. And the Direct Primary Care Alliance is physician-founded, physician-directed, physician members. And it's all about advocacy, mentorship, and education around direct primary care. And, And a large majority of the physician members in the Direct Primary Care Alliance own their own, what people would call micro practice. So many of us have one, maybe two clinics 
and follow a model of X number of patients, 500, 600 patients, 800 patients, 400 patients, whatever, and a doctor. And with and and there's been some contention in the DPC movement that what what is true quote unquote DPC and I think yeah. that I personally think the healthcare system is so fundamentally broken that there's massive amounts of room for all kinds of innovation in this space and they all drive down cost improve transparency improve patient care improve the quality of the life of the provider or the physician so I don't necessarily ascribe to one specific way to do this but I I own my own micro practice, so to speak. And the fundamental challenge really is, I think all of our pricing is a tiny bit too low to create a readily scalable solution within the micro practice environment. And so there's a bunch of conversations we have to have in this movement, because I think there's a couple things going on. One is our residents, our doctors in training exposed to this version of primary care. And there are doctors out there who are young and who are just like we were when we were young, that the calling to primary care is the promise of long-term relationships and being embedded in a community and all these intangible things that really do make this job amazing. And those things are really stripped away in the, I would say, the employed model or the system model. You just don't get to see that. So I'm concerned the people who might have a native calling to some of the intangible benefits of primary care, if they don't, if they aren't exposed to DPC, like boots on the ground DPC, that calling and that interest is not going to be reinforced. We also layer in what we all know, which is we still have this problem of catastrophic debt for most people when they graduate medical school residency, which is a barrier to primary care period for everybody. That debt level with no guaranteed income is a huge barrier to getting a loan and entrepreneurship and startup. And so there's a lot of barriers or perceived barriers. But at the end of the day, I think most of us would say, and I do believe there's people out there who know, but still maybe need to have their own life lesson, that it doesn't matter if you earn $150,000, $250,000, $300,000 a year. There's a point where your life can be made so miserable that there's no amount of financial security that makes a job worth it. So in terms of the pipeline question, I, I think the place we're at right now is I do think people with a big heart for family medicine and some exposure or awareness to DPC are much more likely to spend their first three to five years employed because of the financial risk and because of the promise that systems make. But I do think we're just going to continue to see people at that three to five year mark start to say, oh, heck no, I can do this so much better on my own. It would be much more ideal to actually have physicians come up from high school, college, medical school, and go straight into a cost transparent model. And if we could do that in a way where those physicians didn't have the debt burden, that would be transformative. So one thing I've worked on behind the scenes here and there with one of the groups I do some lobbying with, and it's more of a discussion than anything that's been actionable, but I've also applied twice to try to get SparkMD designated as a basically a health core service site. And What would be super transformative in this movement is if there was a cost threshold or price threshold under which clinics like the clinic you're going to start or clinics like the clinic I have, basically clinics that are driving down the cost of healthcare that are charging less than $1,000 a year for healthcare, if we could readily qualify for debt reduction, which I think is not only um, appropriate, but mutually beneficial. And that might be something that then fills the pipeline. If you go into the military or you go work in the prisons or the National Health Service Corps or whatever, I, I think this innovative model of healthcare, I think there we could put some parameters up and and continue to push for DPC types to qualify. And that would help with recruiting. A lot of physicians too, and a lot of our colleagues that are burnt out that don't want to take on the full responsibilities of entrepreneurship, they want guaranteed salary. And that's tricky. I need you to join me 
I want you to take less income. I want you to take on some risk, but you're not going to be the owner. That's a really difficult proposition. So we have a lot of hurdles, um, but I do fundamentally think that the more of us that just keep doing this and the more patients get exposed to this as an opportunity, the more patients get educated that a CBC is not $48 or $110. It can be $3 or $5. We get this groundswell that creates demand. And then we're just going to continue to have this supply demand discussion for a long time. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Melissa Ratliff, and I'd like to wish a happy Mother's Day to all of those moms out there who, like me, have had the wonderful opportunity of having kids, but also happy Mother's Day to those who have mothered other people and to those who have been unable to mother and to those who have been mothers and lost their children. So happy Mother's Day to all. There's two things that popped into my head when you said that one, my last day before maternity leave, my last patient, I spent 42 minutes discussing insurance and what is covered and what is not, and didn't even talk about medicine. Yeah. And it, but it is draining emotionally when you have more of those patient visits than you do taking care of people because people are so not aware of the fact that medicine is not, especially primary care is not that expensive. And the other thing is that in terms of getting the word out about DPC, one of the strategies that I saw, one of my friends who just opened up a DPC in Michigan, Lakeshore MD, Dr. Mara, she just made her website live yesterday. And um, yeah, so she had learned about this from another DPC doctor in Michigan, but they listed the mapper on as part of their website with notes about if your family is interested in this type of care, but they don't live in Michigan, check out this mapper and find someone. So I think even by doing little things, anything we can do to spread the word is definitely helpful. What's been strange to me, and this is where I honestly think your podcast has an incredible opportunity. What's been really strange to me is with everything going on in our country right now, I feel like we see so much recycled news so many riffs on the same stories or little tweaking this bit of data or that bit of data. And healthcare is an incredibly hot topic right now for innumerable reasons. So what has been strange to me, some of our DPC colleagues have made it to the big stage. Dr. Josh Umber and Ryan Newhoffel have been on Hannity a number of times. I did a short bit on NPR talking about what the pros and cons of Medicare for all kind of a situation. But what's crazy to me and what I hear from a lot of my patients is they're like, how have you been in this community seven years and we don't even know about you? And sometimes I feel like that's such a marketing failure on my part, or is it a marketing failure on the part of the Alliance? But there's absolute clear data, clear experience that the best way to grow your micro practice, your macro practice, or to grow this movement is just word of mouth. So there's so much more out there than there was before. But I still am not sure why we don't have this massive, like, not CNN expose so or MSNBC story or, like, why That's does the whole world not know about that this is happening? And, and I don't have an answer for that. But I think this is a story that needs told. Yeah, I say all the yeah. time, and I don't know if this is, if this feels like it's been my quote, but I'm sure it's not. Nothing sells like authenticity. And when people are starting their yeah. DPC adventure and they're worried about how do I explain this business model to patients or how do I deal with people suggesting that I'm abandoning them or whatever, I'm like, it, it just be your authentic self and give your earnest and professional and brief explanation for why you have to do this. And I was thinking about some things and I don't know why I was thinking about this, but I was thinking about 
If you basically calculate the standard hourly wage for a family physician, last year, the average family physician in the U.S. made reportedly made about $208,000 a year. And if you work 40 hours a week, that's $108 an hour, which most of us don't, right? Most of us work 60 to 80 hours a week. So that gets you closer to $54 an hour, which is actually lower than the standard hourly wage for most MPs or PAs, not to mention plumbers and many other professionals, right? The, the gentleman that helped redo my front yard because it was a shit show, excuse my language, um, just charged $60 an hour for labor. So when you said you spent 42 minutes on talking about insurance, you have someone with up to 35 years of education, $400,000 of debt, who's being paid at best $100 an hour. So she, you just spent three quarters of an hour. Someone just paid you $80 to talk about insurance in a scenario in which your training is actually to advance um, a person's health. So like the absolute we, you and I and doctors, we may say we're, we're not doing well, we're not thriving, there's more physician suicide, we're frustrated, but I like to always try to break this down to the most objective information we can. And what's absolutely insane about primary care is we actually, and I don't mean this as a smart aleck, but we actually have a job to do. Like we have, being a doctor is a job. And what I heard over and over and over again was, oh, well, when we, we need to order the mammograms this way now, the doctors can click on that. We need to get a prior authorization. The doctors can help with that. We need to do more end of life discussions. That's the doctor's responsibility. And I just found like we're, we were like this endless expansive bucket, but I'm like, but actually the, the bare bones of what we're supposed to do already actually has totally filled the capacity of the time that I have with this individual. So, you know, not just DPC, but, but, but healthcare transformation in general, I think, requires physician and physician organizations to come back and start to say, actually, we have a job. Like, the job that we do is hard. The job that we do matters. And, and we have a job. So adding on to that doesn't work. And I told my patients right before I started Spark, I started to say, I actually started to think months before I said it, but I started to say to some patients, I was like, you need a doctor. Like, you need someone who can actually be a doctor. I have so many other criteria I have to fill to even just survive this 15 or 20 minutes that like, is there someone out there who can just be a doctor? And so what I love about direct care and, and our mission is healthcare simplified, but I have to remind everyone that works for me from the new counselor we have to our esthetician, to my nurse practitioner, to my nurse, anything that detracts from providing care of the patient we are on constant hypervigilant watch of, is it necessary and are we going to do it? And the beauty of DPC is you can start to say, no, we had a patient yesterday who's a nice gentleman, but he, and he's fairly affluent and hurt his knee four weeks ago, probably meniscal. His buddy's a retired orthopedist. And he called in and said, hey, my buddy's a retired orthopedist. He checked out my knee. He said he thinks it's a meniscus. So I want a referral to this orthopedist, orthopedist and that orthopedist because I want to get in with them. And I want you to do both referrals so I can see who's available first. And I called him and I said, no, we're not sending two simultaneous referrals. And we're not doing it on a knee I haven't examined. And are you like, I want you to come in. I'll check out your knee and I can inject it if it needs that. And we can order an x-ray if it needs. And anyway, it's just... The beauty of DPC, and, and had he got mad or had he said, I want something else, we have the privilege of saying, gosh, this just isn't a good fit. At the end of the day, the guy was like, oh, I didn't know you could do all this, which is crazy. Another part of the conversation. But I've had a patient that demanded dermatology referral and a prior authorization for rosacea, and she wouldn't do any of the treatments I recommended. And what was so wonderful about DPC is I just said, no. I was like, you can come see me and do what I've prescribed. And then if that fails, 
I'm happy to send you to Derm, but I'm actually not using my time to send a referral uh, when you haven't even done what I've tried. And anyway, so I love being focused on doing my job. This one. If you want to see Olaf, let's watch Frozen because... No, not um, Olaf and the Wolves. Okay, we don't have to watch Olaf and the Wolves. How about we watch Olaf and the Fire Spirit? No. I the Fire Spirit and Elsa and Olaf and Christoph and Sin and Anna. What's funny, the difference in three months, you'll have this exact same conversation with Asher. And what will happen is you'll say, you can either watch this or you can go hang out with dad, but that's your only choice right now because I've got to feed brother. And then he'll be like, this is fine. And all of a sudden you'll be like, what? That's fine? You know how many times? So I'm sitting here listening and I'm like, dude, Asher, you get that or you get nothing. And he'd be like, what? That's not how this works. You know, and he'll start to learn like, yo, mom, has, mom, that's my options. That's a good show. I'll watch it 42 times. <laughs> I can totally future self see that happening, but yeah, I'm I'm so not not good at that right now. I was asking Neil, like, how in the heck do you get your five children to eat vegetables? And he literally said something like that: he's it's either vegetables or you don't eat. And I was like, okay, but yeah, the value that we have to always remind ourselves of. I, I frequently get that comment, like your patient made to you you about your orthopedic services. You you do that, like you're. You're a family doctor, though. I thought I have to see a specialist. That is the mentality that a lot of patients have. My patient population up here is about 50, 50 something percent Medicare. And it's ironic that those are the people who ask me that question the most, even though in this community, there is a doctor who retired at 94 and who was doing home visits and fee for service model, but he was still like local to this community for decades. And they went to yeah. him for everything. And one, I mean, in, one of the, you yeah. know, the AAMP <laughs> represents all family physicians, not just GPC physicians. And I work with them and engage with them quite often. And I've thought about this before. And then just this conversation made me think of it again. I think one of the, the best things family physicians could do is push the AAFP to rerun a massive national campaign about what a family doctor is and what they can do. I'm going to bring that up with them. But just because yeah. we need more PR in the sense of, we we primary care doctors the more we've like sped up the visit within the system double booked sent people elsewhere referred onward filled up the subspecialty schedules the more we've taught people about what we don't do or can't and i'm just a big believer that the the number one ingredient for high quality primary care is time and and then that just educates our patients about what we're capable of it's also the most efficient thing for the healthcare system ironically slowing down primary care allowing primary care physicians the flexibility to spend a lot of time with people is the thing I think would transform the healthcare system the most, but it has to, we have to change our compensation models and our revenue models and our billing models to accommodate that. When you said that, it's like the idea of more people knowing that we're capable of what we are capable of, or just even the idea of them, of patients asking us, Hey, could you do that before they ask for a specialist? It just makes me all super like yeah. bubbly inside because I'm like, yes, I can do that. Where my husband and I are, where we chose to do rural medicine. That's what we wanted in when we were at Creighton. That's what we wanted when we were in training in Superior, Nebraska, where the, the only people in this town are family physicians other than the APPs. And they're totally valued by their entire community because right. there's nobody else. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to try your yeah. tactic. So, Asher, so we got to pick one movie or it's going to go off. So, which one would you like to pick? This 
here are our options. Frozen, cars, or no movie? Cars. Okay, so we're going to stick with cars. So remember, cars or no movie are the options right now. Okay. Okay, here we go. Cars or nothing. I'm going to try it. All right. Okay. Okay. But yeah, I that would be amazing. There's been quite a bit of criticism of the AFP and um, the I've uh, having worked with now the highest official at the AFP, um, Sean Martin, fairly extensively. I have to be just being completely honest. I've been super impressed overall with what they're doing and what they try to do. They're not perfect. They're a massive organization. There's a lot of business decisions that occur that I might not personally agree with, but I do think that AAFP as an organization earnestly wants to represent family medicine well. And the mm-hmm. the challenge yeah. is that DPC as a movement among family medicine, while I think it's where family medicine should go, I would like them to put even more time, money, and energy behind us. We are a microscopic fraction of the broader AAFP membership. So the attention we get, so to speak, the resources we get to have our own conference, it's not enough. I want more. We all want more. But if we, again, try and distill it down to mathematics, as a percentage of the entire membership of the AAFP, DPC physicians remain a minority. And so to that end, we do have quite a voice with them. The other thing I think, and physicians, we have so much to learn, which is good. But we think about like Kubler-Ross's seven stage degree for whatever. um, No, it's okay. Sorry. Baby, because I heard that Bethany is like doing double duty now because she helps him out as well as doing... The DPC stuff yeah, that Bethany, she was doing before. Um, Bethany has been an incredible DPC advocate, DPC representative, and I, I believe she's gradually moved up through the yeah. AAFP's organizational ranks. I'm not 100% clear, and I should be, which is funny because she and I interact and talk a lot. I'm not 100% clear on all of her roles, but she's a very meaningful, very influential voice yeah. in DPC, and she and um, Sean have worked together for a long time. And they're both very strong advocates of DPC. Although I do respect that Sean represents all family physicians now. So yeah. So, but anyway, so I, you had the questions you prepared for me were so thoughtful and I really appreciate that. Like you did a lot of reading. I wanted to see if there's any specific things you wanted me to touch on, whether it's like entrepreneurship or breast cancer or being a woman in this movement, or is there anything that you, that stuck out to you that is different about me than some other people you might interview that would be helpful to talk about? Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're ready to elevate your level of care and professional satisfaction, register today for the trusted DPC event that can help get you where you want to go. With three physician-led tracks focusing on starting a DPC practice, growing a DPC practice, and clinical expertise within a DPC practice, the Direct Primary Care Summit has content for anyone no matter where you are in your DPC journey. The DPC Summit is happening June 20th to 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Learn more and register today at dpcsummit.org. I definitely would say, because you've, and I'm grateful that you talked about the alliance and just the, the pipeline there, because what, and I don't know if you have any more to add on that, because I, I want to, I want people to have a clear, just like we do about DPC, like that people understand that we can be full scope care 
doctors at an affordable price. It's I want people to have more clarity on what the alliance is and how it can help them become that doctor. Because especially like interacting with people on DPC Docs Facebook group who are new or thinking about, they're like, what is the alliance? And I know, and I think that's good. So that's something. The the best thing about a movement is when it starts to grow beyond itself. And one of the challenges I think of social media is there's answers to questions instantaneously, but it doesn't always mean those answers are fully informed. And, and that may seem a little obtuse, but I think it's really what I would like. I think personally is really important is for people who are entering DPC to understand DPC's history. And obviously there's like my own interpretation of DPC's history, but, and I can give a quick run through in a minute, but the Alliance, in my very strong opinion, and obviously I'm president of the Alliance, I'm one of the founding members of the Alliance. The Alliance was born out of a need identified by a bunch of DPC physicians that just hung out at conferences and drank and and got to know each other. And it literally was the girls and boys club, so to speak. There was a a small gaggle of us who were providing a lot of the speaking four or five years ago and doing a lot of the of answering questions on social media and starting the Facebook pages like DPC Docs, like DPC Women. There there was a group, a core group of us who in in interacting online and then interacting in person at these conferences started to become friends and connections and would recommend each other. Oh, hey, I know Shane Purcell in South Carolina, you should get him involved here or whatever. And so we evolved a friendship, but really um, the root of that for a lot of us was just the shared purpose of growing DPC. And so from that, we started to, simultaneously, there started to be more and more sort of tentacles in the DPC space of non-physicians and not four or five years ago, there weren't a lot of people interested in DPC for their own personal gain. It was largely physicians trying to educate physicians, trying to figure things out, pushing the AFP or FMEC or some of the broader organizations to give us a platform. And so about three or four years ago, the big players was FMEC, which you mentioned in conjunction with the AAFP, which we've talked about, Doctors for Patient Care Foundation, which is an organization out of Florida, largely, I believe, founded by our, the president is Dr. Lee Gross, who is a DPC doctor. And each organization, and then Hint came on the scene, and each organization had their own reasons for supporting DPC, advocating for DPC. And each organization had their own messaging, if that makes sense. Each of the AAFP, FMEC, Doctors for Patient Care Foundation, which kind of ultimately is also DPC action, and Hint, are all of us are pushing the same rock up a hill, but maybe in different ways and maybe for different reasons. And so what has happened though in the last couple of years is the messaging or the understanding of what each organization stands for or what each organization's purpose is, has been less clear. And so 2019, I know a number of people went to Doctors for Patient Care because, and they were marketing that they are the premier direct primary care organization. And some people expressed that they were quite astounded at the political undertones at that conference. The politics that were discussed or that came through there were completely appropriate if you understand what Doctors for Patient Care is, has been, and their goals and what they do and where they get their funding. But that messaging is lost as people are fighting to say, we are the premier voice in DPC. So FMEC represents Family Medicine Education Consortium, represents family physicians in a geographic region in the Northeast, largely, North and Middle Eastern states. The AAFP represents all family physicians who are their members, of which DPC physicians are a very small part, maybe 3%. Doctors for Patient Care Foundation is a free market medicine organization 
that largely supports DPC is influenced by, and a number of DPC docs have provided content for them, but their primary overarching mission is larger than just DPC. And there are political issues relate, uh, involved in that organization, which is fine. And then Hint is has a product to sell and Hint has always been super DPC supportive, but Hint is more the like, Let's look at tech transformation of healthcare across the board. Let's hear about healthcare transformation. So what the Alliance came from was a whole bunch of DPC doctors who were providing content for all of these places and all of these conferences, recognizing like, which one is the organization that actually is doctor founded, doctor driven and represents doctors? And there isn't one. So there's tons of overlap. And then you've got the Direct Primary Care Coalition that is a a lobbying and advocacy group. And it is that is its job. That is how it was founded. It was physicians out of Washington State that early in DPC are Q-Alliance physicians led by Garrison and Erica Bliss, doctors Garrison and Erica Bliss, who hired a lobbyist in Washington State so that they could practice in a DPC-like model. And then they had to take that all the way in 2010 to Washington, D.C. because the ACA was being implemented And they tucked into the ACA some provisions to allow for physicians to charge a monthly fee to patients. So like that's the history of the landscape, but nowhere in that landscape is a all physician group that advocates for physicians who want to do this. And so the real challenge actually has become that there's now more and more people across industry becoming super excited about this movement. And it opens up a very readily possibility for physicians again, excuse me, again to be taken advantage of. And the landscape is becoming cloudy, particularly because of the direct primary care page on Facebook, which is completely unedited, completely unfettered. It's all comers. And there's people not really showing their true colors there in terms of what their motivations or their expertise is. So, While I am biased as president of the Alliance, I'm going to just say something very blunt, which is for physicians particularly, there is no safer, no more authentic, and no more unbiased, and I'll qualify that, organization out there to reach out to for your own development, growth, or education. So my strong advocacy would be that if you're a physician who is curious about DPC or wants to do DPC, Google, get all the information you can, but do not spend a dollar until you've reached out to the Alliance and learned what we're about and looked at all the resources we have for free already. Because truthfully, while I would love everyone to join the Alliance and strongly encourage people to do so, and it is $500 a year to be a member of the Alliance, a vast majority of our educational content is free. Our masterminds are were this year were $300 for 48 hours on site at two to five clinics, just picking the brains of two to 10 DPC physicians in active practice. It's like tens of thousands of dollars of just free knowledge. Our vested interest and our entire membership are physicians who are doing DPC. So we try to stay out of lobbying. We try, but we will issue statements occasionally on major political issues and say, here's what, where the alliance, here's where our head is. And that comes after much effort. We've been trying very hard to grow out of our people who drink together reputation. And we're getting more of a national footprint. We're getting more diversity of thought among our organization and leadership. But our goal and the purpose of this organization is to advocate, mentor, and educate physicians about DPC, period. And I'm just going to be blunt, the page on Facebook, DPC Docs, the one that is DPC Docs is a bit hidden and private and physician only. And if you look, if you could Google, if you Google direct primary care physicians in the U.S. and took the top 10 names that just came up, the people who 
we might argue have been more influential in this movement. Virtually none of those physicians are on that Facebook forum anymore. And I respect the people who moderate that page, but I I actually went toe-to-toe with two of the moderators of DPC Docs because I was marketing the masterminds. And they said, you can't list this here. And I said, I make no money off this. This is not about me. This is about the DPC movement. And let me remind you that one of the people to provide the the vast majority of founding content on this Facebook page was me and the people who are sponsoring this. So what is this? And it's a landing page for people to be DPC curious, but that is also not declared. So anyway, my my number one advice, if anyone's made it this far, do not spend a dollar until you have Googled everything you possibly can about DPC. And then if you want to spend money, first reach out to the DPC Alliance and ask questions because our goal is just transparency and guidance. And we are DPC physicians only. And I get made fun of for this, but I said this on stage and and some people think I'm a little too heavy handed. And again, authenticity, anything but authenticity is often a waste of all of our times. So About two and a half or three years ago, there was about 1,200 people on DPC Docs. And the content got to a nader where it was really productive. And then what started happening is people started to use it to post medical cases or questions. And a physician who's actually now a very capable Uh DPC physician, who's actually killing it, posted, what kind of mop do you guys use? And do you mop your own floor? And I lost it. Not lost it, but I basically responded and said, this is ridiculous. You are using the eyeballs of 1,200 physicians to ask about a mop. If you're an entrepreneur and you own your own business, man or woman up, make decisions and don't use this forum for this because what's going to happen is all the people who have something really productive to provide are going to leave. And I actually uh, had two people behind the scenes say I was a disgrace to the DPC movement. How dare I say that? That who was I to say those kinds of things? And then I reached out to the moderator of that page and said, what is really the purpose of this page? Is it education? Are we going to hold people accountable to constructive criticism? And are we going to hold people accountable to thoughtful questions? And she said, basically, you are off base, meaning I'm off base. This is for the DPC curious. All All questions are safe here. And so when people reached out behind the scenes to me and were really rude, and there was only two or three people, but it was enough for me to say, you know what? And I said, respectfully, I said, I would like you to take down all content I've provided here for free. And I need to step back. And actually, that was one of the origins for deciding to just publish an independent document or a book. But it's gotten a little bit better, too. But you'll also see people ask the same questions over and over and over again. And it's exhausting. And so the way that site has been moderated has tailored it for people who are just in the introductory phases of DPC. Then what happens is the rest of us just get tired and leave. Why is Garrison not on there? And I know he's retired and I love Garrison and he's fantastic and he has so much to contribute, but because it's exhausting to, to stand up for something and to be a leader in the movement, but to have moved to a place in the movement where people don't even understand what your contribution has been so far. And then to have a moderator not stand up for you. But, and again, I don't mean this as a cut on the moderators for that site, although it is, I kind of am, but like, we haven't figured out how to scale Facebook as a learning tool. It's just really hard to do. So it's a great entry point, yeah. but, but it's hidden. So direct primary care becomes an entry point for almost everybody. And that is completely unmoderated. And that is where I worry physicians are being taken advantage of. So it's buyer beware. People need to need to do their own research in the beginning. And I would say if you go to if you go to yeah. Hint or the AFP or FMEC or Doctors for Patient Care, 
All of those are robust and reliable resources, and you can poke around and see if the undertones fit your personal politics or belief structure. And then I would yeah. I would go after sure. one sure. of those organizations or just start with the alliance. And because our attempt is to try to thread the needle and advocate for all of those spaces, but at the core of our mission is the DPC physician, period. We want people to find the place where they go, oh, I'm safe here. Yeah. I'm not going to get ripped off. I can self-advocate, I can navigate, and I can hear truth. That's what we are all about. And so, and we we did little member moments and things, but your podcast stands to be much more robust. The other thing I would say, we're not super, super open about this. We don't try to hide it, but there is a hardship discount. And I think the DPC Alliance membership has incredible value. It has incredible value in your first year with the discounts. Like you're going to save way more then your membership fee and discounts with the vendors you're going to use to start your practice. So I would encourage you. And then we also, people can pay monthly. It's 48 bucks a month. But in the first year, if there's a hardship discount, that's quite substantial. I would totally be willing to do that to join the Alliance. It's just that like, I felt again, this imposter syndrome, because I'm like, I don't we even all, have my doors we, open you know, yet. And, and I've been like saying, I'm going to open to work on actually. That's a really good point. Number one, everybody feels that way. And you're going to feel that way forever. And you just, I, I think, yeah. I, and, and totally putting everything together in a way, and I don't mean this unkindly to our male colleagues, but I think women struggle with that more across the board. And some one key to entrepreneurial yeah. success is you just fake it till you make it. You don't lie, but I'm not good enough. Yeah. I'm not smart enough. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. Excuse yeah. my language. That's all BS. You don't harm people. Yeah. You don't do these egregious. I don't do knee replacements, but the like, you just put it together and yeah. you move forward and then you learn. We just launched, we're working with a kind of a cool company called Deer Doc. And so we just launched a bot on our website. And, and I know my big barrier, okay. I'm a very like chaotic, messy, wonderful, creative. My brain's full of mini ideas, tornado. And tend to surround myself with very orderly yeah. people. And I joke, there's no FEMA if there's no natural disaster. But Deer Doc, like, needed all these deliverables from me. The, the clock was ticking and I'd already paid them. And I was like, look, I need you to embed this in my website and we need to just start. So we started and then yesterday, you know, yeah, yeah. one month in and some things are going really well, but there's some really unplanned things happening. Like patients using this bot to ask medical questions, right? So it's, oh, crap. But literally yesterday... Uh, I now yeah. understand exactly how the bot needs to function. I, I understand the questions we needed to have and how we needed to okay. triage. The only reason I know how to do that now is because I launched it and saw what happened. Other people plan and organize and plan and organize and then sure. do it. But so one awesome gift of entrepreneurship yeah. is, and yeah. same thing with parenting is you just, you get to become comfortable doing the best you can and flying by the seat of your pants but when you're your own boss, yeah. you can change your mind every day. It's not ideal, but you can. And yeah. so I tell people all the time, don't get in yeah. too deep financially, especially in the beginning. Don't take unnecessary risks if you don't have to, yeah. but don't be afraid to pivot the next day. You might launch on your website that you're going to charge 50 bucks a month. Yeah. And then within a week, you're like, that is the wrong number. In the beginning, you just pivot, you just fix it. And it's beautiful because that's not something we get to do yeah. when we're employed. With the Alliance and, and specific to you and, and to all your listeners, look, we want every single DPC interested, DPC motivated, and DPC startup physician to be our member. That's what we want. We need their voice. We need their questions. We need their passion. And we do not want money to be a barrier. And as a physician, I remember, and I still am, very embarrassed when I have to say $500 is a lot of money. But it is. And that's a testament to what we're doing. So 
email our membership committee say i want to join i'm in i want to contribute and here's my financial situation and we have accommodations especially in the first year when you have your own quote login we have over 47 vendors with discounts the discount for rubicon alone is more than the (laughs) annual membership we are yeah so like it's a no-brainer and the weird thing is like you say you feel like an imposter you're not open yet so you're hesitant to join but the Honestly, some of the greatest financial benefit is in the startup. And then honestly, a lot of organizations pull their speaker panel from Alliance members now. So there's an infinite number of opportunities to have your voice heard, have your influence heard. We want to give platforms to things like this, to earnest things done by earnest physicians. So I I just, it sounds cheesy, but I'm like, we want this to be the doctor club, the DPC doctor club. And we want everybody to feel, everyone who's passionate and pushing a rock up a hill we want them to feel like that's their administrative home. And, and we need that. The movement needs it because we, we want to be the, the premier voice of DPC. And the only way we can do that is if we have all the voices. Actually, a quick update. The DPC Alliance is, continues to be super focused on actually maximizing your member benefit with education and mentorship and advocacy and discounts. Everybody loves discounts. So we continue to have um, the discounts that I mentioned, a few extra. One resource though, there is a resource people should be aware of called Jason Health, J-A-S-O-N health.com. Patients can log in, order their own labs, uh, print out an order and take it to Quest. And it allows um, cash labs. So for DPC doctors that maybe are still working on their cash arrangements with labs, there's one uh, additional opportunity. The um, GPO, we have a Henry Shine GPO for our members. Uh, It's not as aspirational. It's not all the way done. It's not this amazing, beautiful, you click and you you whisper to it and it sends your clinic all the things you need to start up. But, But we're working on that. And then the third deliverable we were working on is still one of probably our biggest lifts as an organization, which is the the MedMal. And Joe Grundy, our executive director, is is passionately committed to making that happen. Uh, And so um, you probably actually will see something from him or from Dr. Neil Douglas asking for declaration sheets because we kind of end up in a loop. Uh, They want deck sheets. We want discounts. And around and around we go. So still pushing that rock uphill. But You know, all of this is to say that the better value the alliance can provide for you or the better value any organization can provide for you, you know, the better, the better opportunity we have to really stretch our patient's dollar and demonstrate how much healthcare you can get for, for how little, right? And so, so in addition to all of these discounts and opportunities for your business, and um, it's just a reminder that you have value, you have worth. And while we're trying to save money on one end to still make sure we're, we're valuing what we do properly. Um, because at the end of the day, all of this is about, you know, providing healthcare with transparency and, and authenticity and, and with integrity. What you just mentioned, malpractice is huge just because we all expect rates to be fluctuating and going up over time. So a great business tip as you evolve your business sure. is build safety net upon safety net. And what I mean by that is, number one, you don't have to have okay. lab cash pricing available for your patients. It's a nice plus. But just high quality medical care and with your cell phone or ready access to you, and it doesn't even have to be instant access, same day access to you is an incredible win. But my plan is always, okay, I work with X lab. I have Y lab. I have another local lab. I have all their pricing and I have them on the runway if my lab can't keep their stuff together. And then after that, I've got Quest and I've got LabCorp that I haven't negotiated with. And then after that, I know I can get a pickle So it doesn't matter what my vendors do. I know I can maintain this value proposition to my patients. And the other thing I've learned over time, I fought and fought. We use a CBC. 
I had negotiated and negotiated. No, $3.15. No, $2.85. If patients are paying $500 for a lipid panel and you can get them for $50, that's amazing. Now, when I know and our integrity yeah. knows someone else is getting it for yeah. five, it's all a win. And you can negotiate these things over time. You just keep working on it. Recently, I posted a POCUS class fellowship. It's a year-long fellowship. And one of the Alliance members, he came across as like, you're not part of the Alliance, so I'm not going to share that information with you versus every other DPC Alliance doctor I've ever talked to was like, oh, I'm part of the Alliance and let's hear your story. I want to talk to you. They're so open. That was a very negative perceived interaction, but nobody needs to speak poorly or to represent a member as a us versus that. Like when you talk about the drinking game stuff, I mean, that's like friendly and, and jovial, but like when people are seriously like, you're not part of the lens, I'm not going to talk to you. So one of the reasons I yeah, say yeah, yeah. that I encourage yes. what is going to make the Alliance stronger and what is going to make the DPC movement stronger is having yeah. a physician led organization with hopefully no disincentives that represents as much diversity of voice in this country as we possibly yeah. can. Because one challenge we have as an organization is, and I think we all have this, but is insularity, which is what we, and we have gotten past this, but we want to continue to get through it. The, I don't know you, who are you? You're not a member. You're not my friend. The thing we have is we have incredibly gifted, incredibly intelligent members and some member leaders who, whose entire life experience has been within their own community. And that what brings them incredible strength as physician representatives sure, of their community. Sure. But it can be very limiting, limiting in terms of yes. sort of their global experience with just others. So I trained in rural Indiana. And, and so I grew up in Idaho. I went to Harvard. I worked in yeah. tech. Then I decided to be a doctor, went to med school, did my, didn't go to med, did my med school requirements at Vanderbilt as a post, post-bac. Went to University of Washington. So I've got Idaho, Massachusetts, Texas, Nashville, Washington State. And then my four years of med school were spread <laughs> over Washington and Idaho, largely, honestly, commuting, so to speak. And then I did residency in rural Indiana because we wanted to be close to my in-laws who live in rural Ohio. And what was very difficult for me in residency, very difficult, was, and it took me a long time to realize, I didn't know I had a culture, that Idaho has a culture. I knew I didn't fit in on the East Coast. I did great in Texas. And it wasn't about being a white girl. It was about being an Idaho girl. And I get told time and time again, nobody ever wonders what you're thinking. And that's when I feel like I'm being filtered. So at home, when I speak my mind, I'm not seen in, in Idaho. When I speak up, I'm not usually seen as blunt or overly direct um, or overly assertive. But in other communities, I, I will realize that, that my style or the style that works for me here is actually quite abrupt for some people. So what was crazy in my residency training was it took me almost my entire residency to realize that there was a pretty strong conflict between my personal culture and the fact that I expected people with an MD to have a a very diverse education. And the majority of people I trained with were born in Indiana, went to high school in Indiana, went to college in Indiana, went to IU med school, and then did an IU residency with the goal of going back and serving their hometown community, which is really great. But it created this incredible disconnect 
uh, between my expectations and how I was raised and what I thought it meant to be a highly educated person and what their life experience was. So I see that a little bit in the Alliance sometimes too, is we have members who have a very diverse life experience and we have members who known they wanted to be doctors in their hometown since they were five and that's the goal they achieved. And when you run a national organization trying to transform our healthcare system, you see that come out. And my hope and my goal sometimes as president and my role involved in social media forums is frankly sometimes to edit when those things come forward because those are not in the best interest of our broad organization. And this is a business challenge, right? Once you're entrenched in your business or your life or your mothering or your fathering or your marriage, like what you need to grow and be successful is the people you want to be involved in your life to be willing to give you open feedback about where you need to go. And so just like we talk about the scalability of DPC or the scalability of an individual clinic, like the the fun, but also challenging thing. And there's, this is a, a point in some of the entrepreneurial literature I've read is it says like, how often do you check in with your customers? How often do you check in with your marital partner? How often do you check in with your membership and say, what are the perceptions of what we're doing and where we're headed and where we're going and what are your needs? And in my opinion, there is zero reason why a MD or DO who wants to start their own DPC practice should not be all over the Alliance, like zero reasons, but clearly there's incredible opportunity. Same thing. I feel the same way with DPC. Like it's a slam dunk. The majority of my patients say they save at least $2,000 a year on their medical expenses. And, and how does my entire community, oh how are gosh. they not sitting in my parking lot breaking yeah. down my door? It's a slam dunk. You know what I mean? But no amount of money, or maybe there yeah. is, that we could spend on marketing to get that message through the way. It comes through when, like, you get to interact with Kissy and go, man, I respect this woman. She's on point. She's earnest. Yeah. This makes sense to yeah. me. Now, Julie, you just mentioned the fun in DPC. And so I want to highlight the aesthetics branch of SparkMD. So could you please tell us more as to how this got started and how it's grown over time? Yeah, sure. I think I think that's a great question. You know, one of the coolest things about entrepreneurship and owning your own business is you can make it what you want it to be. And one thing I think about a lot is the pathway for physicians is really pretty static and has been kind of forever, right? The idea is you sometime identify you want to be a doctor, you go to high school, get good grades, go to college, med school, residency, you come out and then what? Like for the next 50 years, you do the same thing. And so it it shouldn't be an epiphany, but it was for me to realize many of the things that called me to family medicine and make me a really great family doctor, specifically, you know, people say being a polymath is or a Renaissance woman or Renaissance man. Um, apparently that's a, a a rare and somewhat socially valuable thing, but but it's also in, in the business world, they'll tell you true polymaths are not super common. So a polymath is someone with like multiple interests, right? And I would say the same thing that makes someone a capable polymath probably makes them a highly capable family physician. All the things we do to do it well. So so with that said, um, it was a bit of an epiphany to realize that as I got better and better at um, certain aspects of our career, the curiosity continued to grow and I continued to have a drive for new things. I had been challenged for a few years by physicians who do, do aesthetics, specifically injectables, that with my, um, you know, owning my own cash-based business, loving to use my hands, loving art and doing a ton of procedures, it was just completely obvious that a component that I could readily add to the business was aesthetics. Um, my real transition was just 
I got to a point in the business model where I realized that scalability was a challenge. And to that end, you know, I got at, um, I got at a crossroads and, and some of it has to do with, I have pretty high payroll expenses because I have a pretty robust team. I have a bigger team than most DPC clinics would have. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one of those reasons is, is related to my own health events during my DPC journey um, and realizing, you know, cognitive, emotional, and physical bandwidth really changed after I had breast cancer. Uh, another one is, is related to my leadership roles and, and the mentorship and a lot of the things I was doing prior to becoming DPCA president, those, those things really do use a lot of time and I was more than happy to do them. But, um, but long story short, I, I really thought, gosh, there's, you know, gotta be an easier way to earn a dollar that, that is exciting and enjoyable. And I feel good about And, and so I went into some Botox training and what, what I really love about aesthetics is number one, I get to use my hands. Number two, it's often instant gratification. Uh, number three, actually, we spend a lot of time as primary care physicians work, especially I think um, female and or the super compassionate type of primary care physician. We have a lot of interactions that kind of go, they kind of go like this. Um, Hi, I'm here. I have this thing. It's burdensome to me and I don't feel good. And then the doctor says something like, tell me more about the thing. And I learn all about the thing. And then we say something like, tell me what you do in your day-to-day life to take care of yourself. So you're not so burdened by the thing. And the answer is, well, I'm not going to do anything to take care of myself and I'm not going to take medicine. And really, I'm not going to do anything. But for the next eight years of our relationship together, I'm going to bring up the thing that makes my life so awful and not do anything about the thing. And that's human nature. And that's what we do. What I love about aesthetics is it has often has a different dynamic, which is this. Hi, doctor, I have this thing. And I say, oh, and what do you think about the thing? I don't like the thing. What can we do about the thing? And I say, we could see about the thing. Can we do that now? And then they leave and on the end of the opportunity to pivot something for someone. And um, anyway, another pivot point for me was changing how I viewed aesthetics and changing really how I viewed how people choose to spend their money. Because there's a lot of hard truths in how people don't value their healthcare provider. And we see a lot of those truths reflected in how we are paid or how people decide to pay us. And yes, the same person that will spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on minor augmentation of their appearance will not invest that same amount in a full year of primary care with a high, highly capable doctor. And that's not about you. And that's not about me. That's the world we live in. And you can fight it or you can look at it and say, this is something that looks fun and enjoyable. And I'm more than qualified to do. And people are willing to pay for it. And I'm going to work hard and do it well. And um, so that's, that's the very long-winded answer, but that's kind of how aesthetics, you know, esoterically how aesthetics entered my life and, and the role it plays. Wonderful. And just a few months ago, you taught an aesthetics course at SparkMD. So I wanted to ask, what was that like and will you do more in the future? Yeah, so I really, I appreciate you asking about that. So one thing I always try to really be mindful of is conflict of interest. And I, you know, just being blunt, don't want to use my influence that I have earned in the DPC space, um, you know, uh, inappropriately or erroneously. So I've kind of been a little hush-hush or kept under the radar, but I really have struggled to find a high-quality, intensive, two- or three-day aesthetics class for physicians by physicians. And um, so that was my goal, was to offer an intensive sort of, you know, get you off the runway and off the ground and get things started in in a setting that starts from a platform of this is a highly capable person who understands anatomy and 
uh, injections and needles and already has a pretty robust skill set that just needs translated a little bit and into a slightly different space. Um, so we had 12 DPC, mostly DPC. We had 12 physicians who flew in from all around the country and it was awesome. And, and the feedback was we need to make it longer and do more and even throw in some business education. So my intention is to do another class this fall. It's at Spark MD Aesthetics Training. And people are welcome to email me about that or anything else. Um, and um, my, my tenure as president of the Direct Primary Care Alliance ends at the end of this year. And my intention is to pivot and use some more of my time on um, aesthetics education for physicians and some business education for physicians and, and work in that space and, and continue to support the alliance, obviously. Um, but, but yeah, that's, hopefully that answers the question. Definitely. And now in closing, you've talked about the movement and also this idea of the gift of entrepreneurship and feeling comfortable doing the best you can by flying by the seat of your pants. So I want to ask, do you have any thoughts or tips on how a person who is in the entrepreneur space, is in the DPC space, can reevaluate their own value going into the future? Whether that person is thinking about entrepreneurship or whether that person is already established as an entrepreneur? Your questions are so good. You make me think. Um, I think the like overarching touchy-feely answer is that, and I've said something to this effect before, but if you're a physician, you have worked extremely, extremely hard to have the right to do this work or to have the privilege to do this work or to have the license to do this work, whatever you want to call it. If, if you're a physician who could practice medicine or who is practicing medicine, do not forget how hard one that is. And, and I know we feel the burden of it and the PTSD of it and the fatigue of it and the burn of it, burnout of it. But, but I like to flip it upside down and say, this is a privilege you've earned and you can do so many things with it. So particularly when a physician is employed, I think, especially early in their career physician, I think you have no concept for what you can do with your abilities or your license or what you have earned, but you can really make your own world. And, and there's a couple barriers that really have to be overcome. And the first is your own, your own limitations that what you have trained to do can only be done in, in one way or one, one setting. Uh, the second is that you'll be judged or you won't be pure or it won't be true if you do it a certain way. Um, and the third is that you can't change your mind or pivot. And, um, I think we're seeing more and more communication on Facebook pages, like, you know, um, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial physician Facebook pages. And we're seeing more and more narrative of physicians really reclaiming their energy and their capability and pivoting and transitioning in their career, either into or out of clinical medicine. But if you love, if when you're in the room with the patient, you mostly really love it, then I think you should dig deep and really look into DPC. And, and a lot of doctors will say, oh, I'm not a great business person, but that comes and, and you'll learn. And there's a gazillion of us out here who can help and mentor and share our story, which is what everyone's doing here. And all these stories have so much meaning and so much value and, and both in hearing your own struggles in them, but also gathering pearls for creating the life that you, you enjoy. Wonderful. And so inspiring. And I want to ask there, what is the best way for others to reach out to you after this podcast? Thank you. Yes, I'm most responsive to email. So my email is Dr. Gunther. So it's drg at spark, sparkmd.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Gunther, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Muriel. Thank you so much. You're amazing. I'm excited for you. Your clinic is going to be beautiful. 
people are lucky to have you as their doc, man. That means the world to me. (laughs) Next week, look forward to hearing from Dr. Omar Akhtar of Medina Medicine in Austin, Texas. And remember, there is a whole lineup of DBC Alliance Masterminds coming. Dr. Jack Forbush and Dr. Clota Ryan just shared about the events they're hosting on the podcast earlier this week. Check out their episode in the pod feed. If you'd like to know more about the masterminds that are happening coast to coast, check out dpcalliance.org for registration and for more details. DPC Alliance members get $100 off registration fees, and for non-members, use the code MYDPCSTORY, that's M-Y-D-P-C-S-T-O-R-Y, one word, no spaces, for $50 off registration. Also, there is still time to help out fellow DPCer Dr. Christina Dahl get more finalist votes and hopefully win the annual Amber Grant. That's a $25,000 award towards her DPC and her community. Please visit ambergrantsforwomen.com and then find her on the list of past recipients. A win for Dr. Dahl is a win for DPC. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends, too. For more information on this episode and much more, including DPC swag, please visit mydpcstory.com. Also, for the latest in DPC news, check out dpcnews.com. Until next week, this is Marielle Conception.